Well, good morning to you again. Uh, I'm excited for the opportunity to open the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Mike and his family, they are away, and they are in Florida enjoying a little bit of time together. Uh, they'll be back with us on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night when our missionaries are here. And so be praying for them as they enjoy that time away, that they'd be refreshed and uh, ready to roll when they're back in town. Uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity, the, the privilege that Pastor Mike has afforded me to open the Word this morning. And uh, as I've prepared, I've really looked forward to this morning. So uh, as we get into this, we are in a series right now uh, because we're in what we call Missions Emphasis Month here at Shelby. And so the series that we've been in through the month of March is called On Mission with God. And so we've been studying through Acts chapter 16. And in the first week as we were studying Acts chapter 16, uh, we were reminded of the circumstances that led Paul and Silas and their team to Macedonia. Uh, we know that they had desire to go into Asia and to go into another area, but the Spirit of God said no. And so they encountered a closed door, and uh, Pastor Mike said that they had a, a, a tendency towards action, but a sensitivity to the Spirit. And so Paul receives this vision of a man in Macedonia calling out, please come to us, please help us. And so the, the, the team gets together, they pray over it, and they're convinced this is where we're going. And so they have an open door for ministry, and when they arrive... Uh, the key truth we find is that the grace of God closes doors in our lives and it opens doors in our lives. And I know in my life, I can look back and I can rejoice that God closed doors I wanted opened, right? And so it's the grace of God that closes certain doors and that opens others do other doors. And so when Paul arrives, he meets a woman named Lydia. And then in week two, we learned of the conversion of Lydia, a religious woman who had incomplete information but the right heart, and then a demon-possessed girl who had the right information but the wrong heart. And so Paul is interacting with these two. And what's amazing about these interactions is that Paul's heart has had to change. Because in his former way of worship, he would not have been engaging with Gentiles, let alone women. And so we see that the gospel is designed to be given to all who will hear and respond, not just a small select group of people. And so the gospel goes forth. We see a religious woman who is born again. We see a demon-possessed woman who is then born again. And so the, the message Pastor Mike gave us is when you are going throughout your daily life and your plans are interrupted, just plant that seed with the next person. Don't worry about who it is. Just invest in the people in front of us and, and let the gospel work in and through us. And this morning, as we consider Acts chapter 16, we're going to find, and I think we're going to rejoice in the fact that God works in and through our circumstances, even when we don't like them, to platform the gospel. It is in the circumstances and in the disruptions of life where things don't go according to my plan that my attention is diverted off myself and upward to him. And furthermore, it's when I go through circumstances that are painful that they actually can be used by God to impact the people around me who are watching. And so as we get into our text this morning, we're going to see, and what we have seen throughout the ministry of the apostles, is that God providentially works through circumstances. Oftentimes, it's those circumstances where we're wondering, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening right now? Why is this going the way this is going? And it's precisely in those moments that God has consistently shown himself faithful in the, the apostles and in our lives, because it's when our plans come to an end that he is able to really work in and through us. And so as we see and as we get into this, our text highlights God's undenied ability to work through our difficult circumstances to proclaim the gospel through those. So the impact of the gospel is displayed not in the absence of hardship, but in how we respond to the hardships we face. 
And so this morning, uh, as we get talking about this, the, the key statement that has been on my heart is it's this idea that uncomfortable and difficult circumstances may be inconvenient, but they are the goodness of God to us and through us. And so the circumstances that we face that are hard, they're God's goodness to us and through us to those around us. A person who testifies of this, in my opinion, and, and Pastor Mike slipped this one to me, so give, he gave the tip of the hat to this, but Corey Ten Boom, uh, Corey Ten Boom, during World War II, her and her sister were in a concentration camp at Ravensbrück Concentration Camp. And, and in this camp, they were in Barracks 8 to start with, and Barracks 8 was kind of the quarantine uh, housing unit, and it was next to the punishment unit. And so consistently throughout the day, throughout the night, they heard the sounds of people being beaten and of the cries out of pain, and it was just an ongoing day in and day out. Corey Ten Boom is quoted saying this, it grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless human suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. During the experience that they, the, the, the suffering they experienced, they were actually able to sneak a Bible past the guards into their housing unit. And so they were having Bible studies and prayer meetings in their concentration camp room without the guards knowing. And so in the midst of this horrific heartache and difficulty, they're worshiping. And then later in, in the story, they're moved to Barracks 28. And in Barracks 28, the, the barracks itself was infested with fleas. And so when they went in there and they went to lay in the straw beds, there was fleas. Everywhere they went, they were being bitten constantly by these annoying fleas. And Corey Ten Boom says, how in the world can we rejoice in this? How is this something that God would put us through? And I love in, in this account, the sister in, in, in the Bible study, they find this verse, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And so Corey Ten Boom relays this fact that her sister has challenged her, give thanks in this circumstance. How do we give thanks in these circumstances? How is it that we can give thanks when everything that we're facing causes us agony and pain? And the answer that they found was that it was the fleas that protected them from the guards. You see, in this unit, because it was infested with fleas, none of the supervisors and none of the guards would enter into that dwelling because it was too gross. And so they were able to continue their Bible studies. They were able to continue their prayer meetings. And specifically, they avoided abuse and all that came with that because of the fleas. So they came to understand that their unwanted circumstances, their fleas, were actually God's provision for them in that time. And so what we find is that you and I have circumstances that we do not enjoy. We know that there's people who are sick in our gathering. We know that there's people who have recently passed in our gathering. We know that there's financial hardships. There are all kinds of things going on in the lives of the people in this room. But what we find is that in the midst of these circumstances, that we can trust that God is at work in them and through them. So this morning, we're going to see the apostles in an extremely unpleasant circumstance. Right? We're going to see them at the lowest of conditions possible, and we're going to see that the overflow of their heart leads to praise. And I have to confess to you this morning that oftentimes the overflow of Caleb's heart does not lead to praise. It leads to complaint. How easy I find uh, it to pray for a meal at a restaurant and then 20 minutes later to complain about that very meal. And so, Lord, do a work in my heart. Do a work in my heart of, of restoring a thankfulness for what you bring my way. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. So if you want to turn there, we're going to read that text, 
And then we'll hop in and we'll take a look at the circumstances the apostles are in. So Acts chapter 16, 25 through 34. And this is what our text says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. An incredible text that we get the opportunity to study this morning. I'm super excited about this. What we look at is we see that Paul and Silas have been severely beaten. Uh, they, uh, just, just moments ago in, our, in the text before us, we know that they uh, were walking through the city and there was a young lady following them who was possessed with a demon and she was crying out loud day after day, these guys know the way to salvation. These guys know the answer that you're looking for. If you want salvation, these guys have it in the, in the text uh, comically says that Paul was greatly annoyed and he cast the demon out of her. And so Paul and Silas relieve this woman of the oppression that she is under and the result of that is that they get put into jail. And before they get put into jail, they get beaten to the point where their backs have open wounds and are exposed. So in our study, I learned that the, the, the prison they were put in, they were put into the inner part of this jail and their feet were put into stocks. And so what they would do is they would actually spread their feet out so that they could, not, they could not be comfortable. And furthermore, the most comfortable position that they could be in is to lay flat on their backs. The problem is that their backs had just been beaten severely. And so there is no comfortable position for the apostles to be in at this point. And you think about these guys are in the most justified position to complain, the most justified position to rail against their oppressors. And yet we find a very different response. We find that the overflow of their heart leads to an, an, an amount of praise. And so if we look in verse 25, this is what we see. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is this, this really important truth that the gospel is always at work. The gospel is always at work. And so we see at about midnight, this is the darkest hour of the night. This is when they surely would have been in the most pain. They're sore, they're in agony, they're uncomfortable. And what do we find them doing? We find them praying and singing hymns to God. And I love how the natural overflow of their heart is to call out to God in, in, in prayer and then in praise. Singing hymns is, is the phrase used to describe Jesus and the disciples at the, at, in the upper room when they have Passover meal. If you remember, when they're closing that time together, they sang a hymn, and then they left. And so it's this idea that from the overflow of the heart of, of praise and of thankfulness to God, they sing out. 
And we know that Jesus that night, and specifically the following day, he was facing the darkest night, the darkest hour of his life. We know that he was going to endure suffering and that ultimately he was going to be crucified. And in the face of that hardship, what does he do? He sings out in praise to his father. And so as believers, we have this incredible ability afforded to us through the Spirit of God that when we face hardships and trials, that we have something called joy that can well up from within us and it can cause us to sing out in praise when everything around us tells us you should be sad and you should be upset and complaining. As I was thinking about a definition I want to share with you from the New City Catechism, it defines prayer as us pouring out our hearts to God. And I love that, that definition. It's this idea that you are just pouring out. You're not trying to calculate your prayer. You're not trying to write it out. You're not trying to make sure that it's polished. You are just pouring out your heart. What's going on? The Psalms are incredible for this because David often would cry out and he would complain and he would call to God for deliverance. And then typically by the end of the Psalm, it's almost as though he remembers who God is and he praises. And so we see that, that prayer is simply, I'm pouring my heart out to God, and I'm letting him know my, my condition and my, and my disposition. And, and as an illustration to this, I remember uh, when Pastor Mike first came on staff here at Shelby. And something that Pastor Mike does very often is he sings, and he sings out. And if you've been here on a Wednesday night, you know that Pastor Mike is not bashful. That guy's got pipes, and he sings out, and he sings in a very joyful manner. And so I used to, my office used to be right next to Randy Ritma's office. And so for about two years, I had to get used to the constant humming and singing. I loved it. It was excellent. But I got used to Randy. And then Pastor Mike came along, and he would just, at random, in any part of the building, he would just begin singing out and singing out loudly. And I remember an interaction I had with him because I was curious. And Pastor Mike relayed a time to me in ministry earlier on where they were going through some hardships, some difficulties, just the circumstances facing them were very hard, and he came to the, the, to the understanding that he hadn't sung in a while. He hadn't, he hadn't just begun singing out of nowhere in a long time. He hadn't just, you know, randomly just began to sing out to God, and what he, the connection he made is that when we stop singing, that, that what can happen is we can begin to lose sight of our joy, Joy is that, that, that condition in us that doesn't depend on our circumstances. It depends on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And so when we set our focus on that and we begin to sing out, we begin to pray out, what we find is that joy that's in there already begins to well up. And so Pastor Mike, the conclusion he drew and that I have taken away from it is that when I feel absent of joy, the very thing I need to do in that moment is pour my heart out to God. And as I pour my heart out to God, I think we're going to find that what happened to the apostles will happen to us. As we are mindful of the goodness of God, we can't help but sing about it. And so singing is an evidence of the joy that dwells in us. Psalm 42.8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God is faithful throughout the day. His love is always shown forth to us. And so when we find ourselves in the darkest hour of the night and we reflect on the goodness and the love of God, what happens is there's a song of praise on our lips and we call out to him. I know for me, I found that at times in my life that the most difficult thing sometimes is to pray. It's to sing. Sometimes I'll be driving in my car and there's a situation that's pricked at my heart and I'm unhappy and I'm salty about it. And, and I know what I need to do. I need to pray, but I just want to keep driving and listening to the radio or music. And sometimes you just have to stop and you just have to call out to God, especially when you don't feel like it. 
And then as you sing out to him and as you call out to him, my conclusion is that joy begins to flow. And so we see that the gospel is at work in our circumstances. And, and I think what's most noteworthy in this verse is, is what it says at the end. It says this, and the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, what choice do they have, first of all? Right? They're in the same jail cell as them, and they're listening to these guys. I think it's amazing, though. So these guys have just got done. Uh, they, they, I'm sure the prisoners have heard about who they are, right? That they were out and they were preaching and that they helped this girl who was making a lot of money for her owners, telling people's futures. They relieved her of demons and they invoked the name of Jesus when they did it. And now they're in this jail cell after being beaten up and they're praising that same Jesus. And so I have to imagine they're, they're perplexed. Most people in that jail aren't singing at night. They're not joyful. In fact, they're the very opposite. They're in despair. And so the apostles are, are praising God, and the people around them are listening. And the next thing we see in verse 26 is this. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. And so as Paul and Silas are having this, this time of, of prayer that leads into praise, God intervenes. And this is a supernatural occurrence, and we know that because typically an earthquake, what it does is it brings walls down, it makes it difficult to walk through doorways, and in this case, what this earthquake does is it opens all the, the, the doors to the jail, and it looses all of the bonds of all the prisoners. Okay, think about that for a second. That's darn right scary. Everybody's bonds are released at the same time. Everyone is made free at the same time. And I have to imagine that, that at this point, the jailer, and we're going to talk about him in a second, he's got to be shaking in his boots. And so the idea is when a divine work of God shows up, you and I need to pay attention to what's coming after. It's easy for us to get caught up in the miracles. It's easy for us to get caught up in these amazing divine signs that he does. But there's always a message to follow that we need to pay attention to. And so the earthquake is a result of divine power, and he releases the, the jail, and the, the doors are open, the, the, the shackles are off. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. I think all of us are familiar with the noises of our homes, or maybe of our office. Uh, this morning, even, uh, I was in the hallway, and Annette's like, do you know where Randy went? And I was like, I do. Because I know the noises of the doors in this building. I know that he was behind my office in this hallway this morning. And so you probably have that too. In your home, you know when, when someone steps on a certain part of the floor or a certain door opens and closes, you know where that person is. And now think about it in the context of, the, of this jailer. He hears all the doors swing open. He hears shackles hit the floor. And surely he knows that something's happened. Some, something is going down. And so he goes, and his immediate reaction to what he perceives has occurred is that he takes out his sword, and he is about to bring an end to his life. In a very, very sobering moment here. And we know that um, in the account of Acts chapter 12, that what happens to a Roman jailer, again, we're in, we're in uh, Philippi, right? And so this is a Roman colony, as pastor said, a Rome away from Rome. So they practiced the very same things the Romans practiced. And so if a jailer lost any of his inmates, he would incur the penalty that was due them. And so whatever beatings, whatever punishment that they were supposed to get, now he gets. And so what does this mean? This means a very long, very painful, agonizing death. So you couple that with the fact 
that also in, Roman, in the Roman thinking, that if someone found themselves, if a soldier found themselves or a jailer in a situation that it didn't seem there was a way out, there was no way of victory, then it was approved for them to take their own lives in that situation. And so this man is about to make a knee-jerk reaction without a full understanding of what's happening around him. And he is doing this partly because he is overcome with fear. The overflow of his heart when faced with these circumstances is despair. It's hopelessness. And, and, and praise be to God, we know that Paul intervenes. Verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And so this man is saved from harming himself, and he comes in to verify what he has heard, and he finds what is an amazing thing, especially in that context, that the jail, the, the people in the jail are still there. They didn't run away. They didn't flee. And I have to imagine that they were hearing of this God that they're proclaiming. They heard about these apostles and how they freed this woman of her demon possession, and then this earthquake hits, and I have to imagine in context of them singing and praying out to God, they wanted to stick around to see what was going on next. They were probably struck with awe and with wonder. And what we find here is that the gospel is always at work in our circumstances. Paul and Silas are under what we would deem very awful circumstances, and we see God's working through those. And then the Philippian jailer, he is about to end his own life because of his circumstances, and praise be, God, praise be to God, we see he's at work in his life as well. And so the application of this first point, and yes, I know, time is, is, is nigh. But don't worry, we're going to speed through this. The application of this first point is this. At your midnight hour, right, at the moment where you feel like the things going around you are the darkest, when the circumstances feel the heaviest on you, bear in mind that there are people listening and watching. Bear in mind that this may be a circumstance that's going to lead to someone else's awareness of God coming into play. And what we can trust and what we can lean into and what we can rest in is that even when circumstances come that grieve our hearts, that God is at work, that the gospel is at work. The second thing I want to talk about with you this morning is this, the gospel message is simple. The gospel message is simple. Verse 30 says this, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all were in the house. And so we see here that the question, this question is one of grave importance. This man has just gone through a very traumatic experience. And that experience and that circumstance has awakened him to a need he has that before maybe he was dull to. He understands now that he was about to make a decision that was going to impact all of eternity, and he had no answers for what was next. He had despair, he had hopelessness, and now he is calling out because he understands that these guys have an answer that he needs. They have access to someone who somehow gives them joy in the midst of life's most horrible circumstances, and he needs to know about who that person is. God has allowed the circumstances in his life to confront him with the question of, who do I trust in? Who do I depend on? And so, verse 31, very clear, and it just lays it out, and I rejoice in the clarity of this response. I hope you do too. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
The gospel message is simple. I don't think it could be made any more clear that justification or the declared innocence or righteousness that we are given by God is by the work of Christ alone. There is no accompanying instructions of works that have to be accomplished before he can be saved. There is no class he has to go to to be introduced to all these things so that he can make an informed decision. There's no scripted prayer that he has to pray. There's no specific location, denomination. None of these things are at play. What's at play is all you must simply do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I, I just think the simplicity of the gospel, sometimes we can overlook this, that it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly open opportunity for the world, but it's through a very, very specific means, being Christ. And so as we see this, he says believe. The word believe here means to put our full weight upon because he is trustworthy. And so the response is simple. What do you need to do to be saved? You need to take your dependence off your works, off yourself, and you need to put it on the finished work of Christ. Believe on his name. What is required, as I said, there are no requirements. There's, no, there's nothing that he needed to do except for believe on Christ. So what happens when we put our, our trust in Christ? Salvation is what happens. And I, I love how what we've seen in this chapter alone is the inclusivity of the gospel. Right? The inclusivity of the gospel. Before, God only worked with the Jewish people. And, and now, through his son and through his finished work on the cross, and now through the work of the church, now we're finding that it's open to the Gentile. Specifically, it's open to women. And we see in this chapter alone, a religious woman, someone who had a, had a desire to know God, someone who had a desire to understand who he was, but lacked that information, she receives Jesus. She is saved. A girl who is possessed of a demon Right? She is under oppressive powers that are at war with the gospel. She is freed from that, and she is able to believe on the name of Jesus, and she is saved. And then lastly, we have a Roman oppressor. The very man that probably a few minutes earlier was joining in on the beatings. Think about it this way. How much easier is the job of the jailer if the, if the people inside the jail are hurt and they can't move? And so he is probably a part of lashing out this punishment against these men. And now he is given the opportunity to call on the name of Jesus. Pastor Mike said this, and he said that it is only through the gospel that enemies become brothers. Only the gospel allows for that. I, I always think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. And it's just so clear here. What do I need to do to be saved? Believe on the name of Jesus. In verse 32, it says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so we've moved from the context of that jail. We've moved away from there. And now the apostles are instructing the family in who this Jesus is. What I imagine is happening is that they're taking that simple phrase, believe in the Lord Jesus, and they're unpacking it a little further. They're talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that God made. That he is the one who conquered death. He conquered sin. And by putting your trust in him, you are ransomed and rescued. And so what happens is, and what is inferred here is that the household, the people who are in the home at this time, they hear the good news of the gospel and they respond to it in faith. And the, the, the thing that we have to be clear on here is that in the next verse, we'll talk about in a second, is that the gospel is something that an individual must hear and respond to. And so as we look at this, salvation doesn't come by means of a parent's confession of faith. 
It doesn't come by being born into a certain family, into a certain part of the world, being a part of a certain organized religion. What does it come by? John chapter 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we see so clearly throughout the gospel and through the, through the scriptures that salvation is given. It is not earned. And it is given by believing on the name of Jesus. Salvation is an expensive gift that is freely given by God through his son Jesus. And all we must do is call on his name. The gospel message is simple. Lastly, the gospel always bears fruit. The gospel always bears fruit. Verse 33 says this, And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. I think the progression of this text is incredible. First, he takes them out of the jail cell. Okay, they're prisoners. He takes them out of the jail cell. He addresses their wounds by washing them. I think this is an amazing thing that the guy a few minutes ago who was a part of the beatings, who was a part of the oppression, who was overseeing this, he is now the guy who is taking a, I don't know what he's taking, I was going to say a rag, that sounds nasty. He was taking and he was cleaning their wounds. He was addressing their brokenness. He was helping them. Uh, earlier, uh, he's part, like I said, of dishing out the, the punishment. I don't know about you, I get squeamish around stuff like that, right? So there's something really incredible about believers in Jesus Christ and their ability to show compassion. When you look at historically throughout the, the ages, it is the church that has put the efforts in to begin hospitals, to begin schools, to address the needs of widows, to address the needs of those who are fatherless. It is the church that steps into those moments of carnage and of brokenness to distribute compassion. And that is a fruit of the good news of Jesus. Based on what he has done for us, we respond to those around us with compassion. The scripture then says he is then baptized, he and all his family. And in the flow of the text and in what is normative so far throughout Acts, what we find is that typically what occurs is that the gospel message is proclaimed, people hear it, they respond in faith, and then they are baptized. And what we find is that saving faith in Jesus Christ, again, is not dependent on a work, it is dependent on putting one's faith and trust in him. And baptism, according to what we believe as a church, is something that is an outward expression of an inner reality. It is the response to something that we have believed in, that God has rescued us, he has cleansed us. We are no longer alive to sin, we're dead to sin, we're alive to Christ. And so baptism demonstrates on an outward basis what has occurred on the inside, that we have been regenerated, we've been born again. We believe here at Shelby, based on our conviction of scripture, that baptism is not necessary to be born again. Baptism is not something that is required in order for us to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and to be saved. Baptism is something that we believe expresses that reality. And so we want to be careful that we don't put our trust in the traditions of men, and we don't want to highlight something that isn't highlighted to the same extent here. Jesus is bringing forth the message of salvation, and it's found in him. And I think, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that as you look throughout the New Testament, Jesus, when he is with his disciples, they're the ones baptizing. Jesus is not baptizing. You look forward in Corinthians, Paul is, is saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize some of you. Right? And the reason for that is because there's infighting. Well, I got baptized by this person, and I got baptized by this person. And so I think baptism, we can agree, is an incredibly important doctrine and truth 
But the priority in this text is that you can be forgiven of your sins alone by putting your trust in Christ. And so what we find in, in the next verse is this, and this is, this is mind-boggling again, is that the progression continues. So not only is he taking them out of the jail and he's begun to wash their wounds, but now he brings them into his home. He brings them into his house. These are prisoners. These are people that he just got done beating the stew out of. And now he's going to bring them into his home, into the presence of his family. Verse 34 says this, Then he brought them into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So he feeds them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the thing that it says in the, in the King James Version is he gave them meat. And what this word refers to is that he gave them a plethora of food. There was a potluck. Right? He fed them abundantly. He, he lavished love and compassion towards them by healing their wounds and then by feeding them. And, and, and why, do, were they, why was he able to so abundantly love and to show compassion? And I think it's found at the end of this verse. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. Why? That he had believed in God. That is the difference here in his life earlier in this text to now. Earlier in this text, the overflow of his heart when circumstances hit is that he is, he, is, he is grieved and he has no hope. And now he has put his trust in the person and work of Christ and he is showing compassion and love to the very people he just hurt. And so what we find is that the fruit of the gospel, what it does is it mobilizes us to show compassion and it mobilizes us to exude joy. Again, something that believers have that no one else has access to is joy. Right? We all know what it's like to be happy and sad. We all have been on those roller coasters. Joy is steady because it is rooted in the finished work of Christ. And so as we consider what Christ has done, what happens? Joy gets stirred up in here, and then it overflows into service for others. And so this morning we've been reminded of three things. The gospel is always at work specifically in circumstances that we may not want. Secondly, the message of the gospel is simple. Believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And then thirdly, the gospel always bears fruit. There is a joy in us that cannot help but to overflow. And so at the core of mission, we express our trust in God that he is at work in our circumstances, even when our plans fall through. And so take joy this morning. Take joy. Take hold of the joy that is yours in Christ in the midst of your current circumstances because he is working in and through them. Remember, uncomfortable and difficult circumstances may be inconvenient, but they are the goodness of God to us and through us. Would you please stand with me and we will pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and we thank you so much, again, for the privilege you've given us to be able to be together, to gather, and to be able to rejoice in who you are, and to be reminded of the gospel and, and the simplicity of it. We thank you that through the finished work of Jesus that we can be forgiven of our sins and that we can live on mission for you. Lord, as we look ahead to this week and as we look to bringing these missionary families in, Lord, we pray that you would help us to just lavish them with love and to show them compassion. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage their hearts as they serve you. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you be magnified in the days ahead. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.